episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you today and to have this conversation. We've been doing a series lately, Is Mormonism Absurd? And we've been taking various topics out of a book, uh, Obscure Mormon Doctrine by Chris Jensen, uh, where Chris takes uh, various facets of the uh, theological issues. Uh, just for example here, if I go back to the very beginning, uh, Adam, afterlife, America, Native Americans, angels, animals, which by the way, that's what we're going to be doing today is angels and animals. Um, he covers a bunch of other ground too, and I'm really excited to get into the book all the way through. What we're doing is we're taking each chapter and we're talking about the issue that he has at the forefront of each chapter. And then we're just kind of trying to poke holes in it and see if the beliefs in the book that Mormon theology have imposed, if those are rational beliefs or not. And folks are really enjoying the series, by the way. I'm glad that you're loving it. Um, we are a 501c3 Mormon Discussion Incorporated. Uh, would really appreciate a donation. We get donations all the time. Uh, we'll probably raise somewhere around two hundred eighty dollars to $300,000 this year. We pay all of our uh, podcasters after they've been podcasting for a year. Um, we have 11 different podcasts, 11 different podcasters, and we pay them um, and we take in donations and that's how we accomplish our work. So folks, if you're enjoying this series, would you do me a huge favor? Send a few bucks to either uh, this podcast, Mormon Discussion, so you can go on to mormondiscussionpodcast.org or you can go to mormondiscussions.org. In the top header, you'll see a button that says donate. Click the donate button and you there will be a drop down window. You can pick which podcast you give to. If your favorite is one of the other podcasts, by all means, send them a few bucks. But I would really appreciate uh, a donation if you're uh, enjoying this series. Uh, it is how we accomplish what we do. Uh, and our goal is to give people enough information and to share enough ideas in uh, helping people uh, develop critical thinking skills so that folks have enough information to make informed decisions about how they will invest their time, energy, money, resources uh, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints but also to religion more generally. And so we really uh, are trying to help folks who uh, may discover that they are in a, in a high demand fundamentalist religion to be able to have enough information to make intelligent choices about how they navigate their, their religious system. And so again, Chris Jensen, Obscure Mormon Doctrine. If you can send a donation, that'd be awesome. But without further ado, no pun intended, uh, we'll jump into... Uh, chapter nine on angels. And so in this book, uh, we may not have a very long discussion today. These two chapters, I don't think are anything super crazy, but there, there are a few things that we certainly should, should note. So in angels, he talks about there being three types of angels. There are angels to the devil. There are uh, heavenly beings. Uh, so angels to the devil, there are those in the pre-existence who fought on the wrong side of the war in heaven. Uh, heavenly beings, there are two general classes. There are spirits and resurrected beings. And that's going to play out here as we get into a little further, specifically here with priesthood. And so he says with priesthood, when priesthood keys are conveyed from heaven to someone on earth, it is always from an angel 
with a body of flesh and bones because the physical laying on of hands is required to convey such keys. And the only thing I can think of here to note, let me um, see if I can pull up uh, my screen. Um, and we've got to find a, a spot here. And uh, we'll do it right here. Okay, so uh, I pulled up a website here. The, the question here, in Mormon theology, why didn't John the Baptist baptize Joseph Smith? This is just a website where people get to ask questions. In May of 1829, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery went into the woods to pray because of some questions they had about baptism. As recorded by Joseph Smith, they were visited by John the Baptist, who gave them the Aaronic Priesthood. The Aaronic Priesthood included the authority to baptize. John then directed them to baptize each other. First, Joseph baptized Oliver, and then Oliver baptized Joseph. This is an unusual arrangement because baptism generally precedes receiving the priesthood, and usually the baptizer has already been baptized. Now, any believing Mormon will understand that. So this person's asking, as I understand it, in order to perform a priesthood ordinance, it is necessary to have a physical body. This is why baptisms for the dead are performed by the living by proxy. As a resurrected being, John the Baptist had a physical body, evidenced by the fact that he laid his hands on their heads when he gave them the Aaronic priesthood, so he should have been able to baptize them as well. My question is this, why didn't John baptize Joseph and Oliver, or at least Joseph, and then give him them the priesthood? It seems that this would better establish the order of baptism first, then receiving the priesthood. Is this something to do with the nature of resurrected beings, or is there something specific Joseph and Oliver needed to learn? You know, I, I always think of the the TV show, Whose Line Is It Anyway, uh, where the, uh, the questions don't matter and the points don't count, um, but they, they ask them anyway, right? And so we have in Mormon theology you know, when it comes to the Melchizedek priesthood, which also has issues because we have uh, just an ordinary member of the church ordaining Joseph Smith uh, to the office of high priest. Um, we can get into that some other episode when we talk about priesthood. Um, but to note, like sometimes things in the church don't seem to be done in an orderly way or don't seem to make a lot of sense. When Joseph claims that the Melchizedek priesthood was given, he claimed that Peter, James, and John came and gave it to him. And we all recognize that in Mormon theology, John the Revelator is never tasted of death. So he is a physical being. Meanwhile, Peter and James, as far as Mormon theology goes, is suspected to only be spiritual beings. Not They don't have a physical body. They haven't been resurrected yet, but they did die and uh, taste of death. And so you have these three people showing up to give Joseph Smith the Melchizedek priesthood, but two of them don't have physical bodies. But we Mormons, like we make sense of it by going, well, yeah, but John had a physical body. So he was able to give them the Melchizedek priesthood. Peter, James were just kind of along for the ride. Um, if we take that a step further, we go back to this Aaronic priesthood. There's no indication anywhere that John the Baptist had a physical body. The only way that we get that is because, again, as this question points out, that John the Baptist does come 
uh, allegedly to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and gives them the Aaronic priesthood. So in order for him to have done that, he would need to have been a physical being. So we we make the assumption that he was a physical being. But again, if Mormonism's all made up, it, it's just made up. And so Joseph doesn't have to keep everything following exact rules. He can just fly by the seat of his pants and hope that we can always come up with loopholes to explain things that happen back into the story um, or, or that people just won't uh, question it. Um, or that, you know, apologists will come up with solutions and ways to see things that will provide uh, loopholes or spaces for faith. We call this mental gymnastics. And so the idea is that if John the Baptist was a physical being, then he certainly could have gone down and baptized Joseph and Oliver. He doesn't. He gives them the Aaronic priesthood, then has them baptize each other. But you're baptizing, the first person who does the baptism is baptizing somebody in spite of the fact that they haven't been baptized themselves. It's just slightly irrational. And so we just want to note here um, this idea of the Aaronic priesthood being restored and then the Melchizedek priesthood being restored and whether angels have bodies or whether they don't. And if angels have bodies, then maybe they can do these things, but they can't do those things. And it just becomes... A little bit, um, a little bit convoluted and, and, and sort of irrational. And, and the only way you can kind of make it work is when you go like, "Well, yeah, you know, he gave the Aaronic priesthood, but you know, they, they had to baptize." You, you just it, you have to sit there and you have to try to figure out ways to resolve these issues. Um, and I don't think it's easy because I don't think Mormonism is true, and I don't think it adds up. And I think if you go back and listen to the first, I think we've done maybe four of these so far, three or four of these, you'll notice that we're pointing out multiple contradictions in each and every episode. And at some point, this should overwhelm you. You should begin in your brain to go, you know, I can make a thing here that doesn't quite work. Like I can live with that. And this thing over here doesn't quite work. And I can live with that. But at some point when there's 100 or 500 or 2,000, or 10,000 things that don't quite add up, uh, the normal critical thinking mind will start to uh, question uh, the reality versus the paradigm they've been given. And in Mormonism, uh, there are a lot of people leaving the church right now. And it's because that the absurdity of Mormonism, it just mounts up. The more you dive into the history of the LDS church, the more you realize that there are contradictions at every single turn. Um, so just this idea of John the Baptist, again, Peter, James, and John, physical being versus spiritual beings. The next part that Chris goes into here is how to tell the difference. And, uh, and so what Chris does is he says, uh, given the above, should you be visited by an apparition professing to be of God, there's an easy test to know its real nature. And this comes from DNC. Um, I don't have the thing here with me. Oh, here it is. DNC 129, four through eight. And so it's when a messenger comes saying he has a message from God, offer him your hand and request him to shake hands with you. If he be an angel, he will do so and you will feel his hand. 
if he be the spirit, and by the way, he means by angel, a physical being resurrected or otherwise translated some other way that he's still a physical being. Um, and if you offer to shake his hand, he will agree to shake your hand and his hand will be there. If he be the spirit of a just man made perfect, a disembodied spirit, he will come in his glory for that is the only way he can appear. Ask him to shake hands with you, but he will not move because it is contrary to the order of heaven for a just man to deceive, but he will still deliver his message. If it be the devil of an angel of light, when you ask him to shake hands, he will offer you his hand and you will not feel anything. You may therefore detect him. Most Mormons understand this and it's in their own doctrine and covenants, but it's absolutely batshit crazy. And for several reasons. One is that there's this idea of a handshake test. And um, in the idea of a handshake test, you have to recognize that there are other moments in church history where this would have become very useful, but we don't get any indication that Joseph Smith did so. I'll give you an example. When uh, an angel uh, with a drawn sword comes to threaten the life of Joseph Smith unless he enter into polygamy with girls under the age of 18, in which, if you go study the history of the, of the church, um, through the journals and personal writings of the women who were married to Joseph Smith, the females who were married to Joseph Smith, when you look at these young women, they were they report being uh, groomed. They wouldn't call it this because they didn't have the language or understand what was going on per se, but they were groomed, they were manipulated, they were given uh, extremely short time frames. Uh, they were uh, they reported being uh, sleep um, uh, sleep deprived. They would go twenty four or forty eight hours without any sleep because they were uh, contemplating this um, marriage proposal by the prophet Joseph Smith. And if you were fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, and the prophet came to you and said, "You have twenty four hours to make a decision." or the gates of heaven will be closed against you, which is what he did say to Lucy Walker, uh, a 16-year-old girl that he entered a relationship with. She reported being not able to sleep and up all night worried about it for 24 hours. When she came to him the next day and said she didn't think she could do it, he gave her one more day to think about it, and she reports being restless that night. So she essentially goes 48 hours with no sleep, maybe a little longer actually, because it'd be three days and two nights but because it was that long, we start to recognize through science that people are going to experience what they would might interpret as spiritual experiences, but really it's just hallucination of feelings or seeing things um, because of sleep deprivation. So I want to note that the, the first problem we have here in telling the difference is that when the angel comes with a drawn sword to command Joseph Smith to practice polygamy, and we know how Joseph um, carried out uh, his alleged uh, being imposed to carry out polygamy, that in his unhealthy practices of manipulating girls and um, what looks deeply like a child predator sort of behaviors, Joseph could have easily have tested that angel with a drawn sword. He could have asked to shake the angel's hand. And because we're told that angels come, good and bad, 
and that this is the only way to discern, it is very likely in Mormon theology, again, hypothetically, it's very likely in Mormon theology that that angel could have been a bad angel. But because Joseph Smith didn't test him, he is left believing that this is a good angel when maybe it wasn't. Now, consider just the possibility of that in the ramifications it would have inside Mormonism. The second thing is that Satan works through half-truths. We know this through Mormon theology. So the idea that if you asked a bad angel, hey, can I shake your hand, and he offers it to you, but there's nothing there, like it makes much more sense to me that a bad angel would simply pretend to be a good angel who doesn't offer a hand and then continues to give the message. Like you'd have to come up with another reason and go, well, there's a law in heaven that angels who are bad, they just have to give you their hand. And that just makes no sense in light of all the other things that bad angels are supposedly doing inside Mormon theology. So that also becomes absurd. And by the way, if that interests you at all, there are two really good podcasts that I did years ago that goes into this issue about shaking hands with angels. It is... Um, Handshakes and Drawn Swords, part one and part two on Mormon Discussion podcast. By the way, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Um, pretty much any third-party app is going to have us on there. And if you just did a search uh, either in those apps or just on Google and looked up Handshakes and Drawn Swords, uh, you would find those two episodes. I go into detail there Um addressing the apologetics around um, angels and handshakes, uh, what the, how the church and its apologists try to defend that idea. And then I point out how absurd it is and the places in church history that it would have been useful seeing as what we all would look at and go, there's really unhealthy things going on in Joseph Smith's polygamy that shaking an angel's hand and finding out he wasn't a good spirit would have been really useful. Excuse me very much. Um, so the the whole thing about handshakes, again, to me, it is absurd. And uh, if you look at Mormon theology with a critical thinking mind, you end up running into that sort of idea that things are absurd over and over and over again. He talks about uh, Christ being a spirit uh, after his crucifixion while his body lay in the sepulcher Christ was a ministering spirit to the spirits in the spirit world. After his resurrection, he appeared as a flesh and bones angel to his disciples. It also should be of note in the Book of Mormon, Christ comes to the uh, specifically the Nephites who are anticipating his birth on the morrow, for instance, on, on the next day. And uh, Christ is communicating to them that on the next day he shall be born, and we have to kind of reckon with the idea that baby Jesus is inside Mary's belly and somehow his soul is not inside there, but is still able to converse with the Nephites, telling them that on the next day that he's going to be born. Again, it seems absurd um, because this is the very scripture that imposes to Mormons that the spirit or soul doesn't enter uh, the the child inside a woman's belly uh, until the actual birth takes place and that child breathes in its first breath. Um, but the science behind when uh, 
fetuses inside a, a woman's belly or womb, when those uh, children can feel and how they think and whether there's consciousness there, uh, the science is pretty um, pointed in saying like, yeah, like, yes, there is a process that needs to take place in the, um, in the, in the mode of birth where the child comes out of the womb and starts to breathe and, and starts to uh, handle life outside the belly differently. But in terms of consciousness and its movement and ability to think and things going on inside, like it just becomes sort of silly to say, oh yeah, the, the moment the breath takes place outside the womb, that's when the spirit enters. So there's that. Uh, also talks about many roles. So he says there's many roles that angels can perform. He says they are God's messengers. The first one he says here is the angel Moroni from the Book of Mormon appeared to Joseph Smith three times to help bring forth the Book of Mormon. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, I just want to note uh, an issue that apologists have addressed, and I don't think it's the end of the world. I think there are relatively decent explanations for this problem. But if I if I put it up on the screen here, uh, this is Fair Mormon's website, and uh, this is the question. Some church sources give the identity of the angel that visited Joseph Smith in 1823 as Nephi instead of Moroni. I just want to show you an example, for instance, um, if we make this a little bigger. Let's see here. All right. So if we start reading right here, he called me by name and said unto me, this is, by the way, Joseph Smith, uh, his dictation, his scribes wrote it down, but it's his dictation. So it's in first person voice of Joseph Smith. And this was put into, I'd have to go find the, the original source here. Let me just see if I can find it real quick. The original publication of the history in the times and seasons at Nauvoo. Okay. And so he called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Nephi. And this is the beginning when the angel appears to Joseph Smith three times in the night and then the next day to show him where the plates are. And all of Mormon theology imposes that this would have been Moroni. I simply want to note that at least in some early documents, the dictation of that story, uh, it is it is imposed that the person that Joseph Smith actually was visited by was Nephi and not Moroni. Um, I, I think there are reasonable uh, reasons, explanations for why that would have been. It could be a scribal error. Joseph Smith could have simply been just kind of had a little bit of a brain fart and just uh, didn't say the right name. Um, but when it gets written down in this history document, for instance, this is Lucy Max Smith's history. When it gets written down in that history uh, document that I, I told you a moment ago, it ends up being perpetuated in like a like a dozen and a half other documents. And so there are numerous documents in LDS church history, which suggest that the very first angel that Joseph Smith communicated with that told him where the plates were, was Nephi instead of Moroni. 
Um, but again, I, not the biggest deal in the world, not a, not a game breaker or game changer in any way, but at least to recognize like, that's a little weird. Like we thought it was Moroni at some places make it sound like it could be Nephi. And so anyway, but there's Nephi. Um, so there's that talks about the angel Gabriel, the angel, John, the Baptist says here, the angel, John, the Baptist delivered the keys to the Aaronic priesthood to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. But then strangely, he stands back while Joseph and Oliver baptize themselves. Meanwhile, John the Baptist baptized the Savior of the world. Also, by the way, if you're going to explore Mormonism, one of the things you really should spend time doing is understanding biblical criticism outside of the Mormon lens. So when you go and read um, biblical commentaries, biblical criticism, and go investigate who John the Baptist was and what we can assume about him, what we know about him, um, it doesn't really fit very well into Mormon theology. Um, but uh, that's up to you to explore if you want to. I, I find that most folks who are believers tend to want to stay away from contradicting information. But if I can just nudge you a little bit, the only way you're really ever going to know about Mormonism's truth claims, I know your answer is that you'll go and pray about it, and that good feelings means the church is true. But science tells us there's a thing called elevation emotion. Jonathan Haidt is a uh, professor. Um, he is a scientist, and he's written numerous books and articles on elevation emotion. He's kind of the forefront expert on this. Elevation emotion is a normal psychological phenomenon that all humans experience, where if we see good acts occur in front of us, or if we uh, seek out what we believe are good things, we will receive feelings inside us. And he names them, he even says like, it feels like a warm sensation in the chest, AKA burning in the bosom. Yeah, you'll get uh, your, your goosebumps and your hair will stand up. Um, you'll feel really good about the thing you're seeing. Uh, and they even did studies where they would trick people into feeling it. So Mormonism seems to have come along and taken this natural phenomenon called uh, elevation emotion, which is what we call it today, and uh, sabotages it and renames it. They hijack it and rename it the Holy Ghost. So I get from the believer's perspective that you would want to trust your feelings, but I'm just here to say, explore a little further. Feelings really aren't a, a very good way, a very good test to know what's true and what isn't. People all throughout church history have felt good about things that turned out to be not true. Uh, an easy one to point to is the Adam-God doctrine that Brigham Young taught, and that he said many in the church believed by the promptings of the Spirit. We have past leaders who believe that people of color were cursed or less valiant in the pre-earth life, um, and the members believed it too. And now we disavow those theories. And so I, I simply want to note that um, there are plenty of examples where the church and its leaders and its members claim to know things that only later church leaders have disavowed and later members no longer believe. So there's that. All right, I'm going to take that off the screen. 
Um, the next one is Peter, James, and John as angelic messengers restored the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Just a note there, um, David Whitmer, who left the church, uh, wrote a book or wrote a pamphlet. I think it was called uh, All Believers and a Message to All Believers in Christ, something along those lines. Uh, you can do a Google search, you'll find it. But in that document, he says that uh, he never, his time in the church, he never heard anything about Peter, James, and John until years and years after it allegedly had happened, um, which seems to be a strange thing with one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. So that also doesn't seem to fit. And then this other piece here, it says, Moses, Elias, and Elijah appeared as angels and gave to Joseph Smith the keys, respectively, of the gathering of Israel, of the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, and of the sealing powers of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so just to note here that in the Kirtland Temple, I think 1835, 1836, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery have the curtains drawn around them. There are other groups of people in the Kirtland Temple at the moment as well. They also are split up into various groups and have curtains around them. Joseph and Oliver claim that uh, Moses, Elias, and Elijah come uh, and appear to them. Uh, the problem uh, with, with that and I'll put it up here on the screen. The problem with that, how can Elias, who appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, be identified as both the Old Testament prophet Elijah and as John the Baptist? So let me see, let me try to explain what they're saying. Joseph reports that Elias and Elijah come to see him. In Joseph's mind, and we understand how he gets this, it's, it's because of a misunderstanding of the Old Testament but Joseph Smith has the idea in his head that Elias is one person and Elijah is another. The reality, again, through biblical criticism and, and biblical studies, we know that Elias and Elijah are the same person. They're just different ways in which the name is said. So even the church admits this, by the way. See here, the term Elias, in addition to being the actual name of an Old Testament prophet, is used in several different ways in Scripture, okay? So first, Elias is simply the New Testament Greek form of the Hebrew name Elijah. And so what Joseph Smith is doing is he thinks they're two different people, so he reports that both people come to see him, but in reality, it's one in the same person. But the church here is trying to create some apologetics to be able to say like, no, 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 hold on, don't, 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 you know, don't run off with that assumption and lose your faith in the church. We've got a response to that and we can help you put, you know, help you have faith again. So here's what they say. In the Joseph Smith translation, however, Mark 9.3 says that John the Baptist was also present. Uh, this is talking about, uh, first, Elias is simply the New Testament Greek form of the Hebrew name Elijah. The Elias referred to on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 3, is the Old Testament prophet Elijah the Tishbite. So in the Mount of Transfiguration, um, it is believed there, Matthew 17, 3, that Elijah is the prophet who comes to see uh, Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? 
But in the Joseph Smith translation, however, Mark 9.3 says that John the Baptist was also present. Here's the problem. If Mormonism isn't true, then it, it doesn't help that Joseph Smith is a source that states that John the Baptist was at the Mount of Transfiguration as well. In other words, if I go, hey, I know the Bible's true, and you go, how do you know it? And I go, because the Bible tells me so. Well, in this instance, how do I know Joseph Smith is right about Elias and Elijah being two different people instead of what the rest of the biblical study world, the biblical, uh, uh, biblical, the, all, all the scholars in biblical research say that they are one and the same. How do we know Joseph Smith is right? And the only answer here is that because Joseph Smith says so. And the evidence is that Joseph Smith says that it's in, you know, says so in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Here's another added problem. We know that the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible was uh, conveyed to the membership of the church that the Bible had been corrupted over time, that many, uh, many precious parts of it had been taken out and many parts had been changed or corrupted. We taught that Joseph Smith comes along and restores the Bible to its original form hence correcting all of that corruption that had been done over the centuries uh, by folks within Christianity. The problem is in recent years, uh, folks at BYU, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Haley, uh, no, um, Haley Lamont and uh, Thomas Wayment. So Thomas Wayment's a professor, Haley Lamont was a student, uh, and they were doing research into the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And what they found was that Joseph Smith had heavily plagiarized Adam Clark's commentary for the uh, Bible trans, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible that he did. Um, so we, we've got to deal with these issues. If the Bible translation, rather than being a correction of the Bible having been corrupted over centuries, if the reality is that Joseph is simply inserting a contemporary source um, in to make his Bible translation, then suddenly everything becomes a very different sort of animal. But it should at least be noted that, again, uh, it is Joseph Smith who is telling us that they are separate which doesn't really solve the problem if you're using a critical mind and you're wondering how to think rationally about this particular issue. The Bible dictionary makes clear that John the Baptist appeared with the prophet Elijah and Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, Mormonism writes the Bible dictionary. It, it's, it's not that this is an outside source. This is simply more of how do, how do I know the church is right? Well, because the church says so. And then there's this idea, the second Elias, second Elias is a title for forerunner. Why do we know that? Because the prophet Joseph Smith taught that when God sends a man into the world uh, to prepare for a greater work, holding the keys of the power of Elias, it was called the doctrine of Elias, even from the early ages of the world, teaching of the prophet Joseph Smith. How do we know Joseph Smith is right? Because Joseph Smith said so. That's not how logic works. 
And so when you understand the problem, again, the most rational answer is that the biblical uh, scholars are correct, that Joseph Smith messed up, and that Joseph Smith and the church try to create an explanation that will then allow us to dismiss the problem. Um, so, and again, we get other ones, Joseph Fielding Smith, Elder Bruce R. McConkie. It doesn't matter how many Mormon leaders say something. They're simply walking backwards and essentially trying to solve the problem by writing about it later and writing back into it their own ideas about how they had to be separate. So again, once you understand that and you want to be a rational thinker, you should pause with things like that. All right. He talks about ministering angels, archangels, so on and so forth. Um, at the very last section, he says, where do angels live? Joseph Smith clarified where angels live. The angels do not reside on a planet like this earth, but they reside in the presence of God on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. So there are angels, and they live on a globe like a sea of glass and fire. Does that make a lot of sense? No, not to me either. And then no wings. Uh, finally, Smith corrected a common misconception. An angel of God never has wings. Thank goodness for prophets. They're able to give us that kind of stuff. So uh, angels, no wings. Yeah. And then the chapter 10 here is animals. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Um, but there was maybe a thing or two. Let me go through and see if I got anything highlighted. Yep, just one little spot. Um, it says, in ancient America, in, and I'll just read this. He says, interestingly, the Book of Mormon mentions many animals in pre-Columbian America, including cows, oxen, asses, horses, goats, and swine. It also has elephants and other animals called curloms and cumoms. Um, by the way, there is some reference, I think, from Orson Pratt uh, in early Mormon writings where he says that curloms and cumoms would have been woolly mammoths or elephants. Um, it's just strange that the Book of Mormon mentions elephants and then mentions these other things, and at least one of those is reported to be uh, mammoths. Uh, so, so he says, all these other animals existing at the time of the Jaredites, it is widely believed. By the way, this is the money line right here from Chris Jensen. And I should probably take that off the screen. I'll put me back up there. Um, the money line here is, it is widely believed outside the church that such animals had long been extinct from or never existed in the Americas and were first introduced to the new world by Europeans. So. Think about this. Joseph Smith lives in the 1830s, late 1820s, early 1830. You know, he's writing the Book of Mormon, dictating it. It's being written. He puts in animals that are common to the world around him. They are in his contemporary natural world. He does that. But when he gets done, we look at it with the eyes of an anthropologist, of, um, you know, folks who uh, deal with uh, studies of uh, social structures and 
the uh, animals and the things that Joseph Smith would have uh, should have had in the book. If the Book of Mormon is representative of a different time, then the book should contain in it the animals, the plants, the social structures of that earlier time. What we find is that Joseph Smith has in the Book of Mormon animals that are contemporary to him. It would have been certainly um, reasonable if he's writing the book for him to put in the book animals that he sees in his natural world, but for which those animals did not exist or were extinct long before the Book of Mormon uh, was dictated. So when we go back to ancient America, we don't find horses or elephants um, at, in the time that's needed. We don't find mammoths. They, they were extinct long before the Jaredites. And so while Joseph Smith seems to suggest that certain animals were present in uh, Book of Mormon times, if we look with a critical eye at those times and what animals would have been there, we find what are called anachronisms. If you saw a picture of Abraham Lincoln and he was holding an iPhone, you would understand that something's not right. If you read the Book of Mormon and you see certain plants described and certain animals described that did not exist in the time of the Book of Mormon, then something's out of place. But it's even worse than that. Not only do we find animals and plants being mentioned in the book that don't exist in the time they are proposed to have existed, we also find that the animals that should have been in the book and the plants that should have been in the book aren't there. So there are anachronisms on both sides of the coin. Things that are there that shouldn't be um, and things that uh, things that aren't there and, sh and should be. So things that aren't there and should be and things that are not there. And uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm messing this up. Let me say it one more time. There are things that are in the book that should not be there. There are things that are not in the book that should be there. And you can simply do a Google search for anachronisms. You'll end up, one of the sources you'll find will be Fair Mormon or Fair LDS or Fair... Uh, they changed their name more than I changed my underwear. But um, when you go read their material, they try to offer explanations like, oh, maybe these words didn't mean what they said they mean. But now we're on to another issue, which is if we hold the apologist to the idea of a loose translation or a tight translation. In other words, is Joseph Smith dictating the very words off the plates or is Joseph Smith being given ideas and then he's allowed to formulate what those ideas translate to? And the, the apologists are always picking and choosing which one of those they want based on whichever one best fits the issue you raise to them. And so just to note uh, this idea of a loose translation or a tight translation, there are people in apologetics who have even suggested that a horse might have been some other animal like a taper. Um, but it seems strange that in certain situations, we know exactly the name of the angel. It's Moroni. We know exactly the name of the person in the beginning of the Book of Mormon. It's Nephi. Um, we, we know that, you know, the brother of Jared is uh, Mahanre Mori Um, But we somehow can't figure out that a horse is a horse. 
And so again, if you're going to be a critical thinking person and you're going to look at the Book of Mormon with critical eyes, you're going to notice lots of issues that uh, arise and come up. Um, there was one other reference here somewhere about... Um, just wanted to find it here. Maybe I won't be able to. Uh, but it was... Uh, oh, man, I can't think of the name of the prophet. But he took his... Uh, him and the people were so righteous that they were taken uh, up into space. Let me let me see here. Um, prophet... Sorry, I'm gonna, it's going to take me just two seconds. Uh, prophet LDS taken off the planet. I don't know why all of a sudden my mind is uh, blank about this. I was trying to find it, but, um, but anyway, uh, somewhere in these two chapters, it made a mention of that story. And I wanted to at least point out, again, I just wish I had the name of it, but I did want to point out, you know, in recent last year or two, you know, we've got these new telescopes that are out there in space. Um, just to show a picture here of one of them. This idea that, uh, again, I can't remember if it was Elijah. I think it was Elijah. But Elijah, in, where he's preaching, the people are so righteous that this chunk of planet Earth, again, this is Mormon theology, this chunk of planet Earth is is taken up into space. And so Elijah and the people that he preached to, and they were so righteous, they couldn't be on earth anymore. And the that piece of land goes up into space and that's where they reside until Jesus comes back and then they'll come back. Think about it for a moment. There's, there's not oxygen out there to breathe. Space, if you, if you are if you jump out of a spaceship in space, you will essentially die immediately because of temperature, because of air, uh, inability to breathe. There are there's 30 reasons you just can't survive in space. And yet we as Mormons, we are to believe that somehow that magically works. And again, the answer is, well, with God, all things are possible. And if we have faith, but notice again, anytime you say with God, all things are possible. And if you only had faith and maybe you are making room for something less than the most rational answer. And so again, just to recognize that Mormonism time and time again is absurd. Um, so with that, we have covered both angels and animals. And the next time we have a conversation, we'll be in chapter 11 talking about the Bible. Again, if you are liking these, uh, these episodes, please drop us a donation. It would mean a lot to me. Donations have been slow uh, the last few weeks. There is this up and down to the money that we bring in. It really means a lot to me if you are going to donate. If you wanted to give us 100 bucks a year, for instance, I'd much rather you sign up for a recurring donation and pay us five bucks a month. And in the long run, it will be less of you per year, but we have a chance of holding on to you as a donor for multiple years. And that means more value to, to us as a charity. Uh, we are a 501c3, so your donations are tax deductible inside the United States only. 
I hope you enjoy this series. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And uh, I hope that you have an excellent day. Bye-bye.